want you to picture a Catholic monk stretched on a cold floor, hours of prayer, scant clothing so he would be cold, endeavoring to earn God's favor. He would fast and pray for days. He would participate in self-flagellation. He was desperate to be right with God. He was so conscious of his own need and so desperate to be right with God. He took a pilgrimage to Rome, and in Rome, as you have seen, if you were there, in all likelihood, the Santa Scala, the steps that are supposed to be the steps that were the steps leading up to Pilate's judgment hall, upon up which Jesus walked when he was tried before Pilate. And you would see people on their knees as this monk went step by step, I don't know how many, there are 30 or more, step by step on his knees, as I've seen hundreds of people do it praying at each step that he could might, might be right with God. Desperate to be right with God. Tradition says that about halfway up the steps, he stood up, turned, walked back down the steps, and back to Germany, where in his desperation he was visiting with a venerable old monk by the name of Staupitz, S-T-A-U-P-I-T-Z. And he was talking with him about his turmoil and his lack of peace. And Staupitz asked him, do you believe in the forgiveness of sins? He said, of course I believe in the forgiveness of sins. It's part of the creed. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. And Stalfitz looked at him and said, but do you believe in the forgiveness of your sins? It is all right to believe in the forgiveness of David's sins and of Peter's sins. But do you believe in the forgiveness of your sins? And he couldn't say yes. And Stalfitz encouraged him to say it. And he did. I believe in the forgiveness of my sins. And Martin Luther's biographers say that it was from that moment that his life was dramatically changed. Not long later, he tacked the 95 Theses on the door of the church at Wittenberg and shook the world, and the Reformation exploded. Why? Because of one little, powerful, life-changing, dramatic pronoun, my. My sin. It's one thing to believe in a theoretical Christianity. It's one thing to believe in a philosophical Christianity. It is one thing to believe in an ethical Christianity. Do you believe in a my Christianity? 
the climactic testimony of the book of John recorded in the 20th chapter when Thomas, who had been absent when the Lord appeared a week earlier, Thomas was present and the Lord entered the room in his resurrection body looking straight at Thomas and Thomas exclaimed, My Lord and my God. Not the Lord and a God, but my Lord and my God. Have you had that kind of experience? You may be as religious as Martin Luther. You may be as sincere as Martin Luther. You may be as conscientious as Martin Luther. Have you had a personal experience with Jesus Christ as did Martin Luther? Is he my Savior? Martin Luther later wrote in his commentary that the most powerful word in the Christian vocabulary is the little personal pronoun, my. My sins. My Savior. My forgiveness. Can you say that? To do it will change your life and the world around you. You see, he was a very good man, but he still needed to be forgiven of his sins. When we hear that word sin, we so often think of it in its most despicable, heinous, extreme situations, in its antisocial manifestations. The word sin simply means, in Greek, it means to miss the mark. It doesn't mean you're not shooting at the target. It just miss, means you miss the mark. You're aiming at the bullseye, but you don't always hit the bullseye. You miss the mark. You may miss it half an inch, or you may miss it a mile, but an inch is as good as a mile. You missed it. And that's why the Bible says all of us have sinned. What does that mean? That means all of us, however energetic and sincere and dedicated we are, trying to shoot at the target, we miss it. That's why the Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. I have fired thousands and thousands and thousands of rounds from an M1 rifle, as some of you in this room have done also. I wish the Marine Corps had let me have that rifle when I got out. I lived with that thing for three years. Uh, I'd love to have an M1 rifle. I mean, it was a it was the kind of rifle you're supposed to have. It didn't have that scope on there and all that fancy stuff. It had just that open sight, and you had to test the windage and the clicks up and down and to the right. You know, we'd fire from 100 yards, 200 yards, 300 yards, 500 yards, sitting, prone, standing, all those different things, rapid fire, slow fire, whatever. And I qualified at Paris Island, and I did well enough to get selected to to be on the 6th Regiment, 2nd Marine Division rifle team, and they flew us from Japan to Honolulu to fire in the international rifle competitions when the war was over. So I fired thousands and thousands and thousands of rounds, and I've aimed at that target, and I've hit a lot of bullseyes, but I've missed a lot, and I have sometimes completely missed the target. What do you get when you completely miss the target? That's right, Maggie's drawers. They wave a red flag down there in those in the butts where they where they score the target when they pull them down after you shot. All of us have gotten Maggie's drawers in life. I mean, we've missed the target. We've not only missed the bullseye, we've missed the whole thing. So here is a very conscientious religious man who had to be forgiven of his sins, not theoretically, but personally. What happened to him? as a result of that. His life was changed, and he started writing hymns, and he wrote a hymn entitled, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, and he was inspired to write that by the psalm I want to look at for just a moment, Psalm 46. Let me give you a quick background on Psalm 46. It was written out of a very troubled time. 
The Assyrians, under the leadership of Shennacherib, were the Super Bowl champions of the ancient world. They were whipping everybody. They beat the divisional champions in Egypt. They beat the divisional champions in Phoenicia. They beat the divisional champions in Philistia. They beat the Philistines. Now they came up on little Israel that hadn't won a game in their division. And here they were, 150,000 of them got off the bus. And here were these Israelites terrified. They were so frightened, they got into sackcloth and ashes, and their coach Hezekiah was doing everything he could. He was trying to find all the pep talks that Vince Lombardi had written, anything to try to beat the Assyrians under Shennacherib. 150,000 of them. They were surrounded by their enemies. And they were about to give up. And the man of God, Isaiah, said to Hezekiah, Listen, look out there on that hillside. There are a bunch of angels out there. God has his people. And you're going to defeat them by the power of God. And they waked up one morning and looked out there, and thousands of them were slain, and others left. And the Syria was defeated and lost the championship. And God's people won. And this is the background of this psalm. 46th Psalm. It begins with God. You see, that that's the reason a lot of us are in trouble. We keep beginning with the problems rather than with God. We look at God through the problems rather than looking at the problems through God. This Psalm begins where it ought to begin. It begins, it ends with us, but it begins with God. And when we do not live under that kind of priority living, we are going to be, as Henry Nowen describes our day, people who are living abnormally normal lives. Living normal lives by the standards of the day, but it's abnormal living. And one reason is because we've gotten the priorities wrong. God said in the first commandment, you will have no other gods before me. Put me first. Why is that? Is it because he is some self-centered, egotistical deity that wants us to worship him because he is so low in self-esteem? Not at all. The reason God wants us to put him first is because it's to our benefit to put him first. Our life works better when we put God first. When we put ourselves first or our problems first, then we are decimated by fear. And that's what happened to the children of Israel facing the Assyrians. So listen to what God inspired the writer of this great hymn to sing and say, God is our refuge and fortress. Martin Luther read that and he wrote, Our mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Why? Because he knew God personally. He was my Lord, my God. God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. In other words, though everything that's not nailed down comes apart, though all hell breaks loose, God is your refuge and God is your fortress. And God is your ever-present help in trouble. The choir sang it a moment ago so beautifully. You are not alone. Enemies on every hillside. Opposition every day. 
Sennacherib showing up in many different forms and places, but God is with you, and He is your refuge and strength, and He will be an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, you don't need to be afraid. The battle is the Lord's and not ours. The 7th and 11th verses are key verses. The 11th verse is the last verse. It's a short, it's a short psalm. But the 7th and 11th verses say, The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Now it's easy to remember those two verses of Psalm 46, 7 and 11. I've been told by people who know more about this sort of thing than I that those are lucky numbers. It's 7 and 11 winners. Well, I want you to know that 7 and 11 are winners here in Psalm 46. The Lord Almighty is with us, and the God of Jacob is our fortress. Now, let me point out something. He says the God of Jacob, not the God of Israel. We're talking about Jacob before he became Israel. Jacob before he got right with God. Jacob before he had a wrestling match with God. Before he got his heart right with God. We're talking about Jacob. We're talking about sinners, all and each, who missed the mark. And Jacob missed it. Everybody else who ever lived missed it. But that's the reason this is good news. The Lord Almighty is with us, and the God of Jacob, the God of sinning men, his name was synonymous with trickster, wheeler dealer, double dealer, shyster. He's with people like that, like us. And he is our fortress. There was an Episcopal priest who graduated from Oxford, pastored a few churches, and then came to America as a missionary to establish an orphanage and a mission in the state of what is now the state of Georgia. It was a dismal failure. He went home a crushed man, disconsolate, depressed, dejected. On board ship going home were a group of people, some Moravian brethren who had a sense of peace and power that this Episcopal priest didn't have. And he noticed that. In a storm, they were calmer than everybody else. He got back home, searching, reaching, looking. And he went to a little meeting at a meeting house on Aldersgate Street in London. This was in the 1700s. And do you know what they were reading that night in Aldersgate? They were reading the commentary on the book of Romans that had been written by Martin Luther in the early 1500s, 200 years earlier. And this Episcopal priest sat there and in his words said, I felt my heart strangely warmed. My life was changed. I knew theology. 
I was an Episcopal priest. I was a servant of the church. But my heart was not right. And that night, John Wesley came to know that my sins are forgiven. And he shook the world with that truth. That happened to him at 35 years of age. He lived to be over 80, traveled hundreds of thousands of miles on horseback, preached the gospel, founded the Methodist church, utilized by the Spirit of God to influence such lawmakers as Wilberforce and others, abolished slave trade, instituted child labor laws, marvelous social benefits flowing from the fact that a man got his heart right with God and changed the world. And I've been in the little house where he lived and where he died, and I've been in the room where he died, right next to Wesley Chapel in London, in a kind of an out-of-the-way place. If you ever go, be sure to visit it. Some of our roots are there. And he died upstairs at 80-plus years of age. And do you know the last audible words he uttered? I'll read them to you. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. My Lord, my God, Luther's Lord, Luther's God, Wesley's Lord, Wesley's God. Religious men, good men, Intelligent men. Meet another contemporary of John Wesley's. Orphaned at seven. Went to sea at twelve. Became a profligate of the worst kind. An evil man. A despicable person. He became a sea captain and sold human bodies. He was the captain of a slave ship operating out of Africa. At one time in his life, this man got so low, so depraved, that he sold himself, get this, he sold himself into slavery to a slave woman. He became the slave to a slave. And in the midst of a storm one night, all hands were called. The ship was about to go under. They feared for their life. They were pumping. They were getting the water out of the hold of the ship. They didn't think they would survive. And this man cried out as he'd not cried out in his entire life, Oh, God, have mercy! And he experienced the mercy of God in his own heart, in his own life. He came home, taught himself Greek and Hebrew, went to school, became an Episcopal minister, an Anglican minister in England. But he nurtured a group of younger priests who were called, for the first time, the word ever used to describe this man and the group around him, evangelical. 
And his name was John Newton. And he, along with Wesley and the influence upon Wilberforce and others, brought about reformation in the world. So you see, it doesn't make any difference where you're coming from. You're coming from Oxford and an Episcopal priest. You're coming from Erfurt or Wittenberg as a Catholic priest. Are you coming from a sinking ship and a sinful life? He will be your Lord and your God, and he has grace sufficient for your every need. I must tell you John Newton's favorite passage of Scripture. He had it written on the wall, had it written and framed on the wall in front of his desk where he prepared his sermons. And it's Deuteronomy 15, 15. It's also in the 24th chapter, but 1515 of Deuteronomy. Let me read it to you. Remember that you were slaves, and the Lord your God redeemed you. And John Newton never forgot it. And as an elderly man walking down the street, one of his parishioners stopped to visit with him, and ask him how he was doing. He said, I'm not doing very well. I'm forgetting a lot of things nowadays. I can't remember everything. But he said, I remember one thing. I remember I was a slave. And I was redeemed by the grace of God. When he wrote, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Listen, friend, he wasn't being dramatic when he used the word wretch. He was a wretched wretch. He wasn't even close to the target. But he became a new person. Why? The power of the personal pronoun, my. Can you say that today? Let me ask you. Can you honestly say down inside, Jesus is my Lord and my Savior? Not a good teacher? Not the Son of God? Those are true. Can you say, he is mine? Luther said it, Wesley said it, John Newton said it, millions have said it, say it. An amazing grace will be your song, and the grace of God will be your life, and God will be with you forever.